0: You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of adoration. God, you are worthy of following. God, you are worthy. We worship your name this morning, yours alone. Our praise goes out to you alone. God, we love you. In your name we
1: pray.
2: Good morning. My name is Betsy, and I have some exciting news. Um, so about 30 years ago, six couples met in an apartment determined to pray and to, to learn more about God and to pray. Out of that um, prayer group, our church was formed, and it's been 30 years. 1989, um, the church called its first pastor And we are celebrating all the things that God has done, his faithfulness to this church, and remembering um, stories from that time, from the beginning. Um, We're interviewing some of those founding people in that prayer group and putting together um, stories and testimonies. So June 23rd is the day. And just to give you a taste of um, some of the things that will be shared, there's a short video.
3: Hello Trinity, my name is Dan McIntosh. I served as one of your pastors from October 2015 until August of 2018. I'm thankful for this opportunity to wish all of you at TCC a very happy 30th anniversary. We're back in Southern California, and it's wonderful to be around our children and growing number of grandchildren. We just welcomed number five to the family a couple of weeks ago. That's why we left Trinity to be near them, and uh, we couldn't be happier. And yet, I didn't realize how much I had grown to love all of you until we left. I miss you. And you will always hold a special place in my heart. Again, I want to wish you a happy anniversary. I know there have been many ups and downs over the past 30 years. Some of you have been there for all of them. But I believe the Trinity stands as a testimony to the faithfulness of God to his people. And I'm praying for 30 more years of making Gospel centered disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and live for others in community.
1: This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew. Chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. It can be found on page 824 in the Bible under your seats. Matthew 19, 16 through 30. And behold, a man came to him, saying, Teacher, what must de- good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbors as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of God.
0: Good morning. My name's Mike. Really happy to be worshiping with you this morning. So today we continue in the Gospel of Matthew, and today we encounter this passage about a wealthy young man approaching Jesus with a question It's easy for many of us to sort of, at the outset, just be like, this isn't relevant to me. I'm not rich. I want to address that just briefly. So what I could say is, well, technically, on a global level, almost everybody here is rich. I could say that, and it would probably be 100% valid, but it would still be missing the point. Today we're encountering a, a wealthy young man who has a problem shared by, I think, most Americans. And it's a problem that we're going to be exploring, and, it's, and what it ultimately comes down to is it's a way of life lived for the sake of happiness, so happiness becomes our ultimate goal. Maybe we don't articulate it that way, but that's what it is deep down when we really start start digging around. So we're going to explore that a little bit here at the beginning just to kind of flesh that out. So our culture is going through what some people are calling a crisis of meaning. What they mean by that is there's just so many different ways of understanding the world, so many different people who are trying to tell us the meaning of life. It's difficult to Figure it, figure it all out. It's intimidating. So what do we do? And, and the answer that more and more people are giving is: you make up your own meaning. You you sort of assert your own meaning onto the world around you. Make up your own purpose. I was watching a a concert on YouTube. I'm a fan of the band Bonnie Iver, and I was watching a concert at the uh, the Eau Claire Festival from a few years ago. And at one point, Justin Vernon, who's the front man, he stopped in the concert, and and kind of out of nowhere, he begins to to address the the crowd about, you know, issues of metaphysics. And he says, guys, I don't think there's anything but us. He says, I, I've done a lot of research. I've done a lot of thinking. I don't think there's anything but us and the meaning we make. And so we all need to make our own meaning and, and we'll, find, we'll find happiness or we'll find wholeness or whatever. And the crowd started applauding. And I think I can understand why they would start to applaud, right? That it kind of sounds adventuresome, you know, pioneering. It sounds freeing and independent and creative. Make our own meaning. Yeah, that's awesome. It sounds great. The problem is the way that it's actually playing out in our culture is not so great. We're in what, what can only really be described as a psychological crisis. We are psychologically coming apart At the seams. And the reason why is because when there is nothing beyond us, when there's nothing transcendent anymore, whatever meaning we make for ourselves isn't that meaningful. Whatever meaning we make for ourselves isn't actually that meaningful. So I I ran to a funny illustration of this. There was a podcast called "Harry Potter and the Sacred Text." In it, two—I mean, I know it's all good fun. I don't think that they actually are taking themselves that seriously. But in this podcast, two co-hosts come to the Harry Potter series to try to draw out spiritual insights and life goals. In other words, they—they they, they literally say, "In the age when we're all making our own meaning, we've decided to make ours using J.K. Rowling." And, and again, I think the podcast is tongue in cheek. It, it, it's good fun but it might be really good fun for them, but for most people, this crisis of meaning is very real and is shaking us. We're living mainly for ourselves, and, and as a result, we're actually starting to crack down. Depression is on the rise. Suicide is on the rise. Life expectancy has gone down for the first time in years. Those are stats I've mentioned before. And all of this is linked, at least in part, to this quiet psychological crisis of the West. Where are we going to find meaning in life? Many people are addressing the question by not addressing it at all. They're saying, well, instead of finding meaning, I'm going to just say there is none. And so instead, I'm going to live for happiness. And this may not be such good news either. There's an article I I ran into. The title is, There's More to Life Than Being Happy by Emily N. N. Frahadi Smith, and she reports on some, some research that was completed in 2013. Basically, a group of researchers got together, and they did this massive survey, and what they asked people was whether they considered themselves, their, their lives happy, or whether they consider their lives meaningful, or both. And this is where things got fascinating. It turns out that there were many people who said they were living a happy life, there were a few people who said they were living a meaningful life, and very few of those people said both. There was, there was next to no crossover. Why is that significant? Here's why. It turns out that leading a happy life and, and a meaningful life, they're often mutually exclusive. When you live a happy life, what you're living for is to, to, to live a life that is easy, that you're, you're in good physical health, you're able to buy the things that you need, you want, there's not a lot of stress or worry. It's about sort of feeling good that you've got a meaningful life. And what meaningful life is about is about living for a purpose. There's some overarching goal that you're going for. And, and, and what the research found is that the lifestyle necessary to live a happy life is very different from the lifestyle necessary to live a meaningful life. So the research explained the, the reason for that. Basically, what the researchers found, they dug a little bit more into the people that were... were doing the survey with to get into their life habits and how they related to people and how they spent their money. I mean, it became this really in-depth sort of sort of project. And what they found is that the people who reported leading a happy life, the researchers ended up calling them the takers. After they had worked through all their life habits, their lifestyle, their spending habits, they called them the takers. That those pursuing a happy life, they le- led a life that in general involved them Sort of taking. So here's a quote from the from the article I was reporting on this. Happiness is about drive reduction. So in other words, if you have a need or a desire like hunger, you satisfy it, and that makes you happy. People become happy, in other words, when they get what they want on a large scale. So the people who reported being overall happy, that's kind of how they live, drive reduction. But the folks who reported living meaningful lives, the researchers ended up calling them the givers. Because when you're living for a meaning beyond yourself, what you end up doing is you will sacrifice for that thing, and you will sacrifice your happiness for that thing, because that thing is more important than you. And so you begin to live this life where you are laying yourself down for the sake of the meaning you're living for. You become not a taker, but a giver. So let's bring this all together. Most Americans are starved for meaning, starved for purpose. And most Americans are generally happy. And happiness and meaning are sort of pulling at either end of us. And, the, and, and what's happening is there's this slow-burning crisis that's starting because we don't know what we should be living for, and even if we found it, we're not sure we would sacrifice to get it. We don't know what we're living for, and even if we found it, we're not sure we'd be willing to sacrifice in order to get it, today's passage is about a wealthy young man in the first century in Judea, but his problem is the 21st century American problem. He's a man looking for something to live for other than himself, but when he finds it, he doesn't have the courage to live for it. Jesus is going to tell us that humanity's purpose is to give ourselves away for the kingdom of God. And we're going to encounter two hard truths, then at the tail end, there's one motivating promise in the passage. So the first hard truth of the passage is that we can't have the kingdom and have it all. So let's reread verses 16 to 22. And behold, a, a man came to, to Jesus saying, Teacher, what, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal or bear false witness, honor your mother and father and love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect or whole, the, the word in the Greek means sort of whole or complete, so if you would be complete, go sell what you possess and give To the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, because he had great possessions. So here in the passage, this man approaches Jesus, and we're we're told a couple details about him. He's not named. Instead, we're literally just told he's he's this young man, this young wealthy man. He's well off. In Luke's account, the same story shows up in another one of the Gospels, in the Gospel of Luke, and Luke records that he was a, a ruler, quote-unquote, which basically means he was a leader in the local synagogues, the local Jewish place of worship. This guy was a leader there. So not only is he, you know, competent and successful, but he's also very devout. Like, this is a guy who, who really wants to serve God, or at least that's what it appears. And his question is this, what good thing do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus— answers with what I think most rabbis would probably answer with. He says, why are you asking me what's good? There's only one who's good. Some people interpret that sentence to be sort of like Jesus hinting that he actually is the God in the flesh, kind of like, oh, it's funny you should mention the only good one because I happen to be the only good one. I I don't actually think that's what Jesus is, is doing at this moment, and don't get me wrong, we here at Trinity emphatically believe that Jesus is Israel's God in the flesh. If, if you're exploring Christianity and that sounds bonkers to you, please start a conversation. I would love to, to talk through that more because I, I know that that's a jarring thing. But yeah, we fully believe that Jesus is God. I just don't think that that's what Jesus is actually getting at here. I think instead what he's doing is he's sort of saying like, hey, why are you asking me? You're a devout Jew. You know who God. And so what has he told you to do? What, what, what has he said you should do? Follow the way of God. Follow the commandments. And so the young man, he, he asks Jesus to specify. Like, okay, fine, that's fine. But there's 613 of them. Which ones in particular are you talking about? Like, what what, what priority should I be giving? And, and so Jesus names a few of the Ten Commandments, and then he throws in love your neighbor as yourself for good for good measure. And here's where things get fascinating. So the young man answers, and he says... I've done all that. I'm actually living that really sort of religious life. I've, I've kept up with the commands. And then he says this, what do I still lack? Like, you, you can almost sense the, the desperation in his voice as he's saying that. And it's, it's wild to me. Why would he say that? Like, he's saying, I have possessions and good things, but I'm missing something. I I follow the commandments. I'm a good person, but I'm missing something. And we're tempted to say, you're not missing anything, man. You're nice and rich. God must love you. Like, seriously, you're not lacking anything. But even with all that, this dude is more in touch than we are. He senses that something is missing. In 2010, the Huffington Post published an article sharing a number of different studies that have been done around American happiness. And what the researchers are seeing is that our American pursuit of happiness, in general, is the very thing keeping us from being happy. So there's a a quote I'd like to throw up on the the screen. The greater emphasis that people put on happiness, the least successful they are at obtaining it. It didn't matter how happiness was defined— People putting the greatest emphasis on being happy reported 50% less frequent positive emotions, 35% less satisfaction about their life, 75% more depressive symptoms. People that valued happiness the most reported 17% psychological well-being, which they defined as self-esteem, positive relations with other people, meaning and purpose in life, a sense of autonomy, and a sense of competence in tackling life's challenges in some the more you value happiness, try to be happy, or organize your life around trying to become happy, the less happy you end up. We in the States, we want to have it all. We want to be happy. But what if the way to true happiness is by living for a goal other than happiness? What if our search for happiness and having it all is actually robbing us not only of meaning, but actually of happiness itself? What if Jesus is calling us to recover the true meaning of being human and we are passing up on it because we're too distracted? We're trying to have it all and we are losing everything. And the reason why is because we're losing touch with our purpose. And that's exactly where Jesus leads the conversation so Jesus, he, he goes beyond just examining this young man's behavior, telling him, all right, have you followed this command? All right, cool, have you followed this command? Instead, it's about something much deeper. He starts to explore this young man's purpose. He's challenging what he's living for. And the reason why is because this young man may be living by the rules of God. He may be very religious, he's moral. may be living by the rules of God, but he's not living under the rule of God. He's living under the rule of something else. And Jesus reveals this, and he reveals it by giving him this command. And the only way that he's going to follow this command is if something major changes. He tells him to sell everything, give to the poor, and follow Jesus. Why does he do that? Basically what Jesus is doing is he's telling this guy to do something that he will only be able to do if he severs his attachment to his wealth. So to sell everything, this young man's going to have to sever his attachment to security, sever his attachment to financial autonomy. He will have to sever his attachment to comfort, He'll have to desire God and His kingdom more than He desires a reasonable standard of living. His heart is going to have to change. We're talking way more. We're talking about way more than just a financial contribution that He's going to make to the poor. We're talking about a financial conversion that He is going to make to the way of Jesus. Jesus is giving him, offering him meaning, meaning itself. Now, I think if you're like me, your instinct here is to be like, is Jesus seriously telling me to sell everything I have? Let's all take a breath. Probably not. Probably not. There are other times where Jesus has, tells different disciples to sell half of what they own or, or whatever. This is probably something specific to this young man. But that doesn't let us off the hook. So if you're like me, as soon as you hear that Jesus isn't telling you to live by a vow of poverty, you have this, like, giant sigh of relief where it's like, oh, good, I can keep the iPhone. Like, that's, you know, that's revealing. It's revealing, but I'm with you in that. Like, oh, good, my Criterion collection, DVD collection that I, like, watch once is, I can still keep it, and it's going to be fine. Like, here's my suspicion. If you're like me, my suspicion is that we really have the same issue as the young man. And here's my suspicion, because I think that many of us want the kingdom for the same reason we want possessions. I'll say that again, and then I'll explain it. I think that many of us fall into this this way of life where we want the kingdom for the same reason we want possessions. Comfort. We want to ensure that the life we have after death will be as secure as the life we're living before it. We see eternal life as a way of avoiding God's judgment, and it is. We would love for God to give us a renewed environment, and he will. We want him to restore everything, and he will. We want him to ensure that in the resurrection, we will live in as much comfort as we are now, and there's the snag. We want a new environment, but Jesus is really offering us a new ruler. This young man is asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But if the kingdom was really his highest priority, he would be asking, what can I do? And we're the same way. We want to know what the bare minimum requirement is. What portion of my life do I need to submit to God's rule while mostly still living under my own? We are striving to live a happy life, but Jesus is inviting us to live a meaningful one. He is calling us to question, to take like an inventory, to catalog every part of our lives and to say, how can that too be lived for the meaning I was made for? But most of us to quote, C.S. Lewis, are content making mud pies in a slum because we do not understand what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. Maybe you're here today and, and you're presently trusting in Jesus, you're, you're a believer. This passage just sounds terrifying to you, because most of us are like this, this young man. We may not have a lot of possessions to love, but all of us love our possessions, Our comforts, our entertainment. This passage is terrifying to us because we feel like like my life cannot be fulfilled. My life cannot be happy if I submit everything to the rule of God. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're listening to this and thinking, man, now I'm never going to be a Christian. This sounds terrible, (laughs) right? Following Jesus sounds unattractive if it means jeopardizing our happiness, Christian or not, this, this passage is intimidating. Nothing's more un-American than giving up the pursuit of happiness. But as we've seen, happiness, the pursuit of happiness, I should say, doesn't fulfill us all that deeply. Guys, what you need to hear and what I need to hear is the same thing this young man needs to hear. You are made for something more than immediate happiness. You are made for something more than your immediate happiness. There is a way of life that is worth more than the American dream. There is a way of life that is worth you putting everything on the line. There is a way of life that is so meaningful, so valuable, that it is worth the cost of flourishing in the short term. Our nation is in crisis because we are living for happiness but not for meaning. We are still too terrified to change. We are still too terrified to live under the rule of God instead of the rule of self. And again, Jesus may not be telling you to sell all your possessions. Like, there's nothing inherently sinful about being rich. What Jesus is telling us is to give up anything that is keeping us from giving everything to the kingdom. If you're a person of, of, of a lot of riches, thank the Lord that's a gift to you. Use it for his kingdom. If you're someone who has, who's paycheck to paycheck, then trust in the, in the Lord and live by his rule in that. The same meaning that guides the rich among us guides those in Section 8 housing among us. It is the way of Jesus. So how do we begin to have access to the way of Jesus? To figure that out, we have to find the second hard truth, which is that you can't have the kingdom and have it all together. Verses 23 to 26 And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, Oh, with man, that's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So to understand what's going on here, let's think about this for a second from this whole exchange between the young man and Jesus. Let's think about it for a second from the disciples' perspective. You've got this guy approaching Jesus, asking, how can I have eternal life? And from the disciples' perspective, it's like, we want this guy on our team, right? He's competent, he's successful, he's devout. I mean, this is the sort of guy that any other rabbi in the first century, would have wanted on his roster. Instead, Jesus does this whole thing that scares him off. Not only scares him off, he goes away sorrowful, like grieving. The word in the Greek is literally grieving. So why would you do this, Jesus? He could have been so cool. He's so competent. He's got it all together. And the answer that Jesus gives is startling. So basically, the, the disciples, they, they, they hear Jesus say, that it is very difficult for the rich to enter heaven. And we should should see that from the disciples' perspective. It's like Jesus is saying, it's very difficult for highly qualified people to qualify themselves for the kingdom. The disciples are like, well, if highly qualified people aren't qualified for the kingdom, then what does that make me a fisherman? Right? Who can be saved? And Jesus says, nobody. Who's qualified to be saved? Nobody. Nobody has their foot in the door. Nobody has a spiritual advantage over anybody else. And like our impulse is to be like, how could that be? I'm a good person, right? Doesn't God care that I'm a good person? Here's the truth. The issue is that God, it's not that God doesn't care about goodness. It's that he cares about it more than we do. Here's how uh, we as Christians interact with this. From our perspective, if there's a God who brought this universe into existence, then he's also the one who decides its purpose and the purpose of everything in it. He decides how things were supposed to function. And what we see in the writings of Scripture is that God has a purpose for, for humans too. Humans were meant to be these ambassadors of the, of the king to the world that he created. We were supposed to rule the world in partnership with God. And wherever we would go— we would be communicating something by our lifestyle about the goodness and glory and beauty of the God who made us. That's what human life was meant to be. Being human was meant to be a very noble thing, and it still is. But the problem is that we've marred what once was complete and whole and good. The problem is that we continue to insist that we have a better idea of what's good. And we are way too easily pleased what we think is good enough is just not good enough. Like, let's be honest, if we tip our waiter halfway decently, most of us go home feeling like we should be canonized as saints, right? We just don't have very high standards for morality. We mistake moralism for moral beauty. We mistake niceness For goodness, we we think we're just because we hate genocide. God thinks we're unjust because we're indifferent to pride. And the reason why is because being a basically decent person doesn't get to the heart of our problem. It doesn't return us to that originally human way of life where everything we do is shouting to the cosmos: God is good, and He is creative and glorious and beautiful and all that other stuff, every moment of our lives, from our meals to our work to our friendships to the way we lay our head down on the pillow at night was meant to communicate that, and it would have. And so our moralism is cheap compared to what it was supposed to mean to be human. And we're still content with the way we are. Our problem has to do with our whole life direction. Just like we saw in the last section, becoming the person we're meant to be means so much more than just like checking off a good deed for the day so we can treat ourselves without feeling guilty. Becoming the person we're meant to be has to do with, first and foremost, restoring our relationship with our maker. We want to rule ourselves we want to find good and evil on our own terms. And the more we do that, the further and further we're getting from the way God designed human life to operate. So D- Jesus didn't come to just help us become nice people. He came to restore us to our deepest purpose. And part of that is a kind of moral beauty, absolutely. But that's not, it's not moralism. He came to, to invite us to participate in the life of God. So in order for that to happen, every facet of our lives has to be brought back under the rule of God. Anything left under the rule of self will just continue to disintegrate. So how do we do that? How do we reposition everything? Because we can't live perfectly according to God's rule. We've been habituated to the rule of self. So how can we make ourselves right with God? How can we realign ourselves with our purpose? How can we make up all the damage we've done, especially when most of the time we're not even conscious of what we've damaged? The truth is that we can't do it. But someone has done it for us, and this is what, as Christians, we call the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, and he has come to live the life that we were supposed to live. That on the cross, he brought justice down on our shortcomings. And in the resurrection, he rose to new life, ushering in the kingdom of God so that we can participate in that new way of life without shame, without guilt. The resurrection means that there's work to be done. That we can actually participate in it, not on the basis of our own achievements, but because Jesus has achieved. Not on the basis of our own goodness, but because Jesus is good. We relate to God not by works, but by grace. But here's the thing in order to receive this, we have to acknowledge something that most of us are pretty out of touch with, and that's our weakness in order to find hope in jesus we have to lose hope in ourselves but when that happens when we accept that we are incapable of starting fresh with god incapable of making up what's wrong then we're finally at this place where we're like willing to receive forgiveness and to start fresh on different terms what's impossible with god is possible or what's impossible with man is possible with god but we have to come to acknowledge that we do not have it all together So those are our two hard truths. We can't have the kingdom and try to have it all. And we can't have the kingdom and try to have it all together. So now for the motivating promise. We gain more in Christ than we give up for the kingdom. Verses 27 to 30. Then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or, or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So I'm not going to address that last verse because that's next Sunday. So I'm just going to you know, talk through 27-29. 20, Basically, what we've got here is Peter's been listening to this whole exchange. He heard what Jesus said to the, the young man, that if he sells his possession, he'll have treasure in heaven. He's been listening to this whole thing go on. And he, he's, he's started to mull over that, that treasure in heaven part, and that by giving up what we have here, on an emotional or, like, realist level— we get all the treasure of heaven. So P- Peter puts two and two together, and he's like, hey, we've left everything. We've put our lives on hold to follow you, so what does that mean for us? What do we get? And like, our instinct is to be like, man, Peter, you are just so self-interested. Disgusting. I, that would never occur to me to ask. And we, So we expect Jesus to say something like that. We expect Jesus to be like, you should follow me if you didn't get anything from it. But Jesus doesn't do that because he likes messing with us. No, it's because he's like, he's in touch with truth and we're not. Sometimes he likes to mess with us, though. He's in touch with truth, we're not. That's the real thing. So what he says is that, that Peter isn't wrong to be thinking that way. Like, we do this thing where we try to be holier than God. Instead, Jesus says, Peter, it, it is absolutely in your self-interest to follow me. It is absolutely in your self-interest to follow me. There are so There's so much good that comes from following me that you wouldn't even have access to if you spent your life in the pursuit of happiness. So Jesus unpacks it, and he, he has this, lines are delivered specifically to the 12 disciples. And we've got to, this is a, a strange verse, but what you've got to understand is that the 12 disciples are sort of the, the origin place for God's new people, right? From these 12 guys, or, or 11, then the, you had a guy in the but from the, this original core of people, the church is going to break out, right? And so Jesus talks about the 12 as being these like representatives for all of God's people, for the the true people of God, and that they will act as judges for the the nation of Israel. What we're supposed to see there is that God's true people are going to hold the would-be people of God to account, and the 12 will be at the head of that. That's something that's developed in more detail elsewhere in Scripture, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time there. But then he expands it beyond just the apostles, and he starts talking about all of us, and he says this line that, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So at the beginning of the sermon, I talked about that study that showed that happy lifestyles are often not meaningful ones. And the reason why is because meaningful lifestyles are lived very differently than than happy lifestyles. So you remember the takers and givers thing, right? Right? As we follow Jesus, as we follow our meaning in life, the true meaning of life, our way of life is going to diverge, or it should diverge dramatically from many of those around us. Some of us will face rejection, social rejection, or something more serious. That reality is only getting, getting more intense. We'll have to part ways with our comfortable way of life. We will not be able to bend our lives toward having it all because we will be instead ruled by God living for his kingdom. And so if we really want to experience what it's like to live a truly human life, to live our purpose, we're going to have to view money differently, our time differently, our resources differently, our relationships differently. We'll end up reconsidering our schedules, our habits. We'll have to admit when we're wrong, seek restoration We'll have to lean into community in an age where we have never been more atomized. It's never felt more unnatural to live in community. We'll have to rely on God's grace more and more and more as we walk away from self-rule and walk under his rule. But I can guarantee you if you do that, it will be a meaningful life. It just might not be a very happy one all the time. If you live by the way of Jesus, it will be a meaningful life. It just might not be a happy one all the time deeply uncomfortable. Jesus literally elsewhere in Matthew compares it to dying. But what Jesus is saying here is that a day is coming when the project started with Jesus will come to an end. Like Jesus died and rose to reunite God's place and our place, to bring the rule of God here. Jesus died and rose to make it on earth as it is in heaven. And when that happens, what's going to happen is that the life we've been living uncomfortably in the old creation will realize that it was always preparing us for life in the new. That all along, through all the struggles of following Jesus, we were slowly being enculturated into heaven. In the new creation, a life of meaning will no longer be separated from a life of happiness. They will be one in the same, And the reason why is because the world will be put right. When you follow the way of Jesus, when you hand everything over to his way, what you are doing is living the kind of life you will live in new creation. That's what salvation is. It isn't just being in a new environment. It's being a new you. And we receive that by grace alone. And because of grace, you can participate now in learning the culture of the new creation and your shortcomings will not break the relationship between you and God. The ways that you stumble and fall along the way will not disrupt the relationship between you and him as you learn the way of Jesus because Jesus established your relationship with God by grace alone. But if you say you want salvation, You say you want meaning, what you're saying is you want the way as well as the place. You want a new you. And so, my encouragement to us today is to give up everything that is keeping you from giving everything to the kingdom, follow the way of Jesus. It is the way of meaning in the short term. It is the way of happiness in the long term. And I think that, that those of you, those among us who have been following Jesus for, for decades, and there are, are some among us, will, will testify that you don't have to wait until death for some of that happiness to start creeping backwards through time. That there are moments of incredible joy in following the way of Jesus. Ways that you find yourself relating to other people that were impossible prior When we follow Jesus, we discover how human life was supposed to be lived. So I hope that we follow Jesus at, our, at any cost. It's for our good, God's glory, and the life of the world. And I'll leave us with this, this thought from earlier in the, in the book of Matthew. Jesus says that those who try to find their lives will lose them. There's a lot of people trying to find their lives right now. Most of us are. Those who try to find their life will lose it. Those who try to keep it will lose it. But those who lose their lives for the sake of Christ will find them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. Passages like this can leave us feeling a lot of shame, and I I hope that by your spirit you'll prevent that among us. But instead, we we would capture a vision of, of the sort of life that you made us for, I pray, Lord, that we would begin to follow it now. That we would begin to confess sin to one another. That we would bear each other's burdens. That we would be a community that hates what is evil and loves what is good. A community where, where those who are still sort of exploring you can belong and yet be constantly invited and challenged in a very healthy way to believe. I pray, Lord, that you would bring us together even deeper than, than you already have, and you're doing much toward bringing us together as a community. I pray that you would continue that work,
2: and that when we when we are
0: up with each other and seeing each other's lives, we realize that we are seeing the way things will be when you put all things right, at least a glimpse of it. we would live lives that require us to seek for grace. That we live lives that require grace. We love you, Lord, and I pray that we would be the sorts of people who put everything at risk for the sake of the kingdom. I thank you for all the things that you're doing in our midst. I've just seen so many of our folks sharing all things in common, using their resources and their wealth for the sake of of your people. It's a beautiful thing and rare. So continue the work, Lord. We love you. Amen.